Huh, I didn't realize well, that's that. That's an interesting question. You know, I've never heard of it from that So let's talk about that. Let's talk you know, about that. I think you need to come over, stand in my to shoes. Agree to disagree. This is Top of Mind. I'm Julie Rose. Each week on the show, we take a topic people feel strongly about, and we go searching for perspectives that help us feel more empathy, hope, maybe a little challenged. We're not trying to change your mind. We just think that in a world that's so divided, there's power in thinking more deeply about why we see things the way we do. Today, can you count on your water? The water never stopped coming out for us. It just got really dirty and nasty looking. The worst I saw, it got yellow. But in where my office is, which is West Jackson, we had like brown water coming out. Coffee brown. Lauren Lewis lives in Mississippi's capital city. I am a health justice and safety organizer at the Immigrant Alliance for Justice and Equity. Late summer 2022, Jackson's water system failed leaving 150,000 people scrambling for bottled water and boiling what, if anything, came out of the tap. Sometimes you forget and you'll wonder, why am I itchy? Or you'll give water to the dogs and you'll see there's little pieces of debris in there or something. And you're like, okay, y'all shouldn't be drinking this. I forgot. Let me go boil you some water and leave it for a few hours. You literally have to go run it from the tap, put it in a pan, boil it, let it cool down. Yep. It's harder for the immigrant communities because they don't, we only have radios in English and TV stations in English. So now that I work here at IAJE, we've been translating a lot of that information. And a community leader came to the office with about 10 mothers um, just so they could listen to us speak and tell them why their children, you know, were getting sick because, you know, they were drinking the water. This went on for weeks and captured national headlines. But Jackson's water system has been failing for decades. Lack of funding and mismanagement left the city desperately behind on repairing broken pipes and aging equipment. Staff shortages on maintenance and treatment plant crews have reached critical levels. Low water pressure and contamination are so common that notices to boil tap water are routine, says Lewis. My sisters would come in from outside getting the mail and say, we got another one. It's like you can't forget that you live in Jackson because of all the boil water notices that we've had for the past four years. Why is the water so messed up in Jackson? Well, it was right after segregation ended uh, when this problem started to become recurring. And um, they say it's been 30 years since, you know, we've been getting all these boil water notices every every month or every few months. Now they're getting, you know, closer together due to, you know, the, the people we have in office, you know, not taking care of the issues. Mm. Not investing in the upgrades. Disinvestment. Yeah. And what, and how's that related to race, do you think? Well, I, so, so after Jackson was um, desegregated, a lot of uh, white people moved out of Jackson and um, they went to the outskirts and the capital city is just crumbling. The streets are crumbling and so is the water system. And it's because it's 82% black city, in my opinion. Hmm. You think it would be getting more investment if it were more white? Yeah. I'll just say this, that this is happening in places where the majority of people are black and brown. And I just believe that water is life, water is a necessity. So just count your blessings. Whenever you take a sip of water, realize that, you know, this isn't free in some places or this isn't easily as accessible. You have a blessing. How can a capital city of 150,000 people be without reliable drinking water in this day and age in America? The water pollution crisis in Flint, Michigan several years ago was the first time many of us realized that right here in our own country, access to clean water is not as universal as we assumed. There are half a million households in America today without indoor plumbing, according to the census. And like Lauren Lewis said, communities with perpetual water quality problems often do tend to be populated by people of color. 
But you'd be hard-pressed to find a city anywhere in this country that has a water system fully maintained and immune to disruption. Nationwide, we are decades behind on basic maintenance to water and sewer pipes and treatment plants. Add to that the extended drought gripping Western states, and it's increasingly clear that none of us can take water for granted, or should take water for granted. Because we do anyway, right? Even when we're told to conserve, most of us don't. We're flushing toilets, soaking up showers, and dousing our lawns without a second thought until the water bill arrives and we grumble about the rates we pay. What would it mean to recalibrate our relationship with water? Part of the problem with water is that it is a commodity, but it's also a service, and it's also a right. And our society really has not yet figured out how to deal with those three things together because we charge for it as a commodity. We provide it as a service, but only for those who can pay. And yet it's a human right, even if you can't pay. How do we make all three of those things work together is something we really are very bad at. This is Dan Van Abs. I've been working in the water resources field for over 40 years now, in the last 10 years with Rutgers University as a faculty member. When you first heard about the problems in Jackson, Mississippi, most recently where the water system went down, were you surprised to hear about that happening in a major United States city like that? No. No, I definitely was not surprised. Um, Dismayed, I think, is a good word for it. But surprised, no. When you think about the entire United States with hundreds of cities that are of medium to large to very large size, the notion that we would have an incident like this once every couple of years, three years, is um, not at all surprising. Why is it not surprising? What do you know that many of us don't know? Several pieces of this. One is that um, cities have their own unique vulnerabilities. And so um, if your city is supplied through a single water pipeline, then if that pipeline goes, you're in deep trouble. Many cities have their drinking water treatment plants um, alongside major rivers. And so, for instance, if the Mississippi River floods in a major way, there will be at least one city that winds up having damage from that. Um, You can also get major storm damages. A hurricane comes through and damages a facility. Is this more likely to happen today than it was 20 years ago? Yes, for several reasons. Um, One is, of course, we are seeing uh, a lot of very severe storms occurring. Second part is the systems in many cases are in um, cities and, and municipalities that don't have a lot of financial resources. And so compared to 20 years ago, these systems are 20 years older. And so they've had 20 more years for the infrastructure to decline in in quality and integrity. Infrastructure means everything from the reservoirs and pumps that deliver water to a city's treatment facility, to the equipment that makes that water safe to drink, to the pipes that carry it to homes, and all the pipes and processing plants that deal with the wastewater and sewage on the back end. It's a complicated 24-7 operation. Van Abs has spent most of his career consulting with the people in charge of those systems, mainly in New Jersey. What I hear most frequently is that they know what they need to do, and they're not getting the cash flow to do it. So what keeps them up at night is the question of how do they convince the, um, the officials who are responsible for the budgets, like municipal councils and, and so on, to actually appropriate the funds necessary to do the job right or to allow for rates to go up? Where do utility uh, concerns rank in the whole slew of public priorities that any municipal official will have? Seems like clean water and safe sewage would be at the top of that list. I mean, of all the things that you think about that a city provides that touch your life the most? (laughs) I mean, you're probably touching water in your pipes. Well, you clearly are more than you are driving on roads, more than you are 
you know, as much as you are spending in school, maybe. <laughs> like, it's always there. You needed it. So many touch points throughout your day. Why would water not be at the top of the list? Um, f- for exactly that reason, strangely enough, it's because it's always assumed to be there. Um, if you need ambulance service, you know that it's going to take a certain period of time for them to reach you. If you need police presence in a neighborhood, how long is it going to be till they get there? And when it comes to water and sewer, it's 24-7, 365. The assumption is that it's there and that it will be there because it's always been there. And unlike roads, we don't hit potholes in water and sewer lines. Until you get a boil water advisory. and Until you get a boil water advisory or somebody's car sinks into a sinkhole that was created by a pipe burst or something like that, at which point it's startling to people. And part of the problem that we have in lots and lots of places, everything from wealthy suburbs to very poor cities, is that we haven't done enough of this maintenance. So we're putting ourselves at risk. Why aren't the rates that I pay every month for my water sufficient to be doing all of this standard maintenance? So rates have been going up nationally faster than inflation since about 1984. And so you would think, well, you know, that that really should cover our costs. Well, it doesn't um, because many of those costs are actually going to the treatment of water or the treatment of the lines that have been underground have been all too often ignored. They were put in place a long time ago. They've long since been paid for. And utilities all too often have sort of drifted along, not really paying attention to this underground infrastructure and not being able to make the case to the decision makers that money needs to be spent on them. And that's a real problem. The American Water Works Association estimates it'll cost about a trillion dollars over the next couple of decades to update and repair all of the country's water systems. That money can only come from two places, higher taxes or higher water rates, neither of which is very popular. And since it's political officials deciding where to spend what money they do have on water upgrades, the neighborhoods with more influence tend to get more attention. Those neighborhoods are often wealthier and whiter. The thing is, says Van Abs, we all have a skewed idea of what water should cost because most utilities have never actually charged us the full amount it would take to cover treatment, delivery, and maintenance. The difficulty is if we do full cost pricing of water, a lot of places that have high levels of poverty, it's going to either cause or exacerbate existing affordability issues. That's pretty much what's happening in Jackson. You have a city with a great deal of poverty, has not been investing in their facilities over the course of the past probably 40, 50 years or more, and is now in an emergency situation, um, which is going to be very expensive because the system has degraded so much. Professor Van Abs, uh, we've We've talked about how infrastructure and lack of investment are creating problems for how water is delivered to us in a way that we expect. But if we back up a step and think about where the water is coming from in order to get into the pipes, in order to even get to the treatment plants, um, what is that picture like nationwide? How is our source of water as a country holding up? It really depends on where you are in the country. Um, We have two very, very different systems of water law. In the East, it's more of a state-controlled allocation process derived from English common law that says we're going to allocate water. It's all owned in the public interest. It is essentially a public trust resource, and we're going to allocate it to maximize the benefit to society. In the West, they have what's called prior appropriation, which basically means the first entity to come in with a valid use of the water captures those rights and everybody else's rights come after that. That is dramatically different. And and does that, and and, I mean, why? The real difference between East and West is water. Um, If you look at national precipitation maps, what you see is that essentially East of the Mississippi, we are much, much wetter than most of the areas west of the Mississippi. 
And so the prior appropriation uh, process is in many ways a reaction to scarcity. And so so if water is plentiful, as it has been in the East, um, you can afford to be a little bit more magnanimous about it and be like, the water belongs to everyone. We're going to divvy it up to make sure that everybody gets what they need. Whereas in the West, it's like, there's never going to be enough water for everybody. So first come, first serve. Essentially that way. Yeah, it's it's more the, the East allowed for more of a consensus approach because we are so much wetter. I mean, New Jersey gets 45, 50 inches a year of water on average. And there are many Western states that would be absolutely satisfied if they only got 20 inches because they're really getting 10 or 15 or less. So it's, it's a starkly different system. Um, I spent a month last year wandering around the Colorado River Basin, looking at all of the different water supply facilities, the reservoirs, the canals, and so on, to get a better sense of, of just what that region is. And you can drive hundreds and hundreds of miles and see nothing but desert and every once in a while a farmhouse. You can't go half a mile in so much of the East without seeing development. So it's a starkly different setting. And so it, it led to a system of water law that, um, that fit at that time. And we're talking about the late 1800s, early 1900s. Now the system is getting really stressed. Are you saying that that has caused the, the shortages in the West today? If you look at the senior rights that were established under law, a lot of them were mining rights and a lot of them were agricultural rights. What has happened in the period... Meaning that miners and farmers, they showed up during the gold rush and during the settlement period and they said, I'm here, I'm going to take this water, it's now mine. That's right. That's exactly right. If you look at where the water goes from the Colorado River Basin, it's 80% or better to agriculture because they have the senior rights. So what has happened in the period after 1920s and so on is the development of the cities. Los Angeles, Phoenix, Denver, Salt Lake City, and so on. And so where are they getting their water? And part of the answer has been for them to buy out the farmers so that they can transfer those senior rights from the farmers to the cities. And that's expected to continue as some of these places grow. So what it's going to do is force a reallocation of water. It's also forcing a lot of reduction of urban demand. So for instance, uh, Las Vegas in Nevada has grown a lot over the past 30 years, but their water demands have not grown in the same way. In fact, the per capita demands have dropped by half. And that's because they realized that they could not sustain an Eastern suburban grass lawn, you know, everybody has their, their sprinklers on lifestyle. Grass is not a native species in the West. It doesn't belong there, but people like it, right? Where did all these people in the West come from? Well, a lot of them came from Midwestern and Eastern states. And they brought their, their perception of what a nice area looks like to a desert. And they tried to recreate it. And now that's starting to go away. Mm. And Las Vegas is an example of that. But I guess if you're an Easterner and you're like, those Western people, they brought this on themselves because I've seen their lawns and their golf courses. You're not wrong, but you also need to give credit where it's due. That's right. And so, yes, there's the stereotypical, you know, all, a lot of people have taken flights over the West. And what do you see? Brown, 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 brown. And then you hit a, a community and it's golf courses and it's just this bright green. So, so we do have our perceptions of what the West looks like. Um, but it's more nuanced than that. And by comparison, is the eastern half of the United States sitting pretty when it comes to water sources? In a way, we are because we have fairly steady year-round rain, but we have fairly small reservoirs, relatively speaking. And the result is that when we do get a shortfall of rain for nine months or a year, let's say we have a 25% shortfall, we're much more sensitive to those kinds of droughts. 
And you get a situation like Atlanta had a number of years ago where they had what a five-year running drought, something of that nature, or New Jersey had in the 60s, where we had a several-year drought. Those kinds of droughts can be devastating because we don't have multiple years of storage. Something I think is interesting and might surprise people that um, that there's a, a, a system where um, cities in the East will, when, when a river is their major source of water, they'll, they'll draw down from it. It'll get used in the city. It'll go through the sewer plant. They'll clean it up a bit. They'll put it back in the river and the city downstream <laughs> will pull it out, clean it up, drink it, use it, put it back in, send it on downstream, right? It's this kind of like constant cycle that, um, I don't know, we all have such a such a visceral reaction to the idea of drinking sewer water and yet it's the rivers are the rivers are flowing <laughs> with water that has been used and then cleaned up and used again. We call that indirect reuse and yes, it's on places like the Mississippi it's very common, but it's very dilute. Um, we have a river in New Jersey, the Passaic River, where during a very dry period, a drought period, 90% of the river flow is treated sewage. And we're very thankful to have it because it's part of our supply during that period of time. So it really depends on which state you're in and where you are within that state. Yeah. I know there are a lot of um, cities in the West that are trying to get get their heads around whether or not they could convince people to drink treated sewer water <laughs> to, mm-hmm. you know, if it didn't come straight from the snowpack, do not let that come through my water pipes. Which is fine until you find that you're going to run out of water, at which point you start changing your values. And there are municipalities in, um, in Texas and Arizona and California that are at least supplementing their water supply, certainly not 100%, but they're at least supplementing their water supply with direct reuse. There are other places like um, Orange County in in, um, California and and a couple of other places in California where they're taking sewage, they're treating it very highly, they're putting it into the ground. And then after a long period of time flowing in in the ground, in the aquifer, they can pull it out and reuse it at that point. More and more people are accepting the fact that there are places where we're just in trouble. And if we don't do this, then we're going to be without water entirely. And they're not willing to put up with that either. Are there any other um, new or uh, different sources of water that, that, um, that are being seriously considered? I'm thinking of maybe figuring out how to make seawater into drinkable water or figuring out how to make the clouds rain more, drop more, drop more snow or something. The, the whole issue of cloud seeding is, is highly controversial and um, I have not seen anything indicating that we really know that it works. Desalination, on the other hand, is becoming more and more common both in the United States and worldwide because of the same issue. When you have a choice between not having water and having expensive water, then you go with desalination because it allows you to to take something that you couldn't possibly use as a potable water source and turn it into potable water. The other aspect of this is that the cost of desalination has been going down. The technology is getting better and better and better. And so the energy costs involved are, are reducing. And that's been very beneficial to the desalination process. Dan Van Abs is a professor of practice for water, society, and the environment at Rutgers University. Thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. You're very welcome. After Van Abs went on that tour of the Colorado River Basin to see for himself what the drought looks like, he wrote an article for a New Jersey paper urging Easterners to be more concerned about what's happening out West. And his main argument was our diets depend on it. Over a third of the country's vegetables and three quarters of our fruits and nuts are grown in California. Most of that comes from California's Central Valley, which as we'll hear next is in a particular pickle water-wise. So as water grows short in the West and farmers are forced to grow less, our food budgets and our bellies will feel it. This is Top of Mind, I'm Julie Rose.
we farm uh, over 20 different crops here. Uh, a lot of vegetable crops, carrots, processing tomatoes, onions, lettuce seed, almonds, walnuts, pistachios, and wine grapes. This is Don Cameron. And I'm general manager, vice president of Terranova Ranch. And we're located in central California, about 30 miles southwest of Fresno. Most of California's farming happens here in the Central Valley. It's all due to the climate we have here. We have cold winters, which allows our tree crops to uh, go through a good dormancy period. That's our rainfall period, too. We really don't want to see rainfall come um, during our summer. The crops love the uh, dry, warm weather that we have here. Uh, It allows them to ripen fully and do well here. But that also means... We rely on irrigation for all of our crops. Unlike the typical American farmer, Don Cameron is not from a long line of growers. He planned to do wildlife management, but couldn't get a job after college and fell into farming instead. He's been working at Terranova Ranch ever since and worrying about water just as long. I've been farming 41 years now, and I noticed that our groundwater levels were slowly declining over time. We do tests every year on our wells to see what what the water level is, and we saw the water just continually drop about a foot and a half every year. And there's a couple old books that have descriptions of this region, and in the early 1900s, you could dig a fence post hole and it would fill up with water. The the water was just barely below the surface of the ground at that time. Currently, the water level stands at about 240 feet from the surface. Terranova Ranch and the other farms in the area are completely dependent on drawing water from the aquifer, a vast underground reservoir beneath their fields. The Kings River flows down from the Sierra Nevada mountains through the Central Valley, but that water is all spoken for in that first-come, first-serve water rights system we heard about earlier. By the time the Kings River reaches the Fresno area, it's just a dry bed. Groundwater, on the other hand, has been a free-for-all in California. You pumped all you wanted. If your well ran dry, you just dug a deeper one. And that has only just changed with a new state law that requires future groundwater use be sustainable. But if the aquifer is empty, what good is that? You know, it's it's like a bank account. You can't keep withdrawing year after year after year. Sooner or later, you run out. Uh, And for the long-term sustainability of the farm, I felt it was critical that we start action early and uh, find a way to start rebuilding the aquifer, you know, below our feet. Where would the water come from, though? There's not enough rainfall in the area to make a dent. But there is the occasional flood on the Kings River, when the normally dry riverbed near Terranova Ranch transforms. It's essentially alive. We have a really nice flow of water going by. And it's free for the taking. Well, maybe not technically. There is an ongoing legal dispute over who owns that flood water in the Kings River. But practically speaking, all that surplus water never got much attention unless it overflowed the banks and became a nuisance. Don Cameron, though, he saw an opportunity. We actually used it to irrigate our crops and turn the wells off because that's the best way to preserve your, your aquifer. Then he started to wonder if maybe they could use the flood water to refill the aquifer. That would mean pumping lots of it from the river onto his field so it could slowly seep into the soil. And find its way back down to the aquifer to start rebuilding it. And we developed a research project uh, involving flooding uh, open fields and flooding wine grapes. When the river flooded in 2011, Cameron got his chance. We flooded for a period of over four months during the spring and and early summer. Didn't Uh, that kill your grapes? Well, we had a lot of uh, skeptics at the time that uh, said we would kill them. And uh, we we found that uh, we were able to put water from February up until the end of June without really without any problem. How deep are we talking here? We put about a 
foot and a half to two feet of water on the growing crops until the air temperature got up above 95 degrees. The water became warm and we saw the leaves of the grapes start to turn yellow, which uh, we know is oxygen starvation. And so we immediately withdrew the water and about 10 days later, the, uh, the grapevines, the leaves were a beautiful dark green again. And we progressed throughout the rest of the season, harvested the crop during the normal period, which is August, uh, uh, without any detrimental effects. They tasted okay. Yep, they were fine. And it worked. We had sensors in some of the wells near there, and we saw a 40-foot increase in the aquifer from the water that we put on the wine grapes. And then, and, and then you were able to pull that water out the next summer. I I presume. That's exactly right. Cameron did it again on a larger scale in 2017 and 2019. That's the last time the Kings River flooded. State and federal water and agriculture agencies have given grants to expand the project. The main barrier at the moment is a legal one. See, before the state started regulating groundwater, Cameron says no one really cared if he siphoned off the Kings River during a flood. But what's interesting is all of a sudden, it made flood water that nobody wanted in the past a very valuable commodity. And there's an ongoing battle over who's going to be able to acquire the, the right to take that flood water um, in the future. We're waiting for the state to uh, decide what its plans are. Meanwhile, Cameron says his neighbors have overcome their initial skepticism about flooding their fields. They know that this is the the key to uh, long-term survival and sustainability in this region. It's not the only solution, though. California farmers also have to figure out how to use less water overall. Before Cameron even started flooding his fields, he had made extensive improvements, like burying drip irrigation lines for his crops under the soil, so less water is lost to evaporation. He also scaled back, or abandoned in some cases, growing crops that require too much H2O. The changes made a real difference. We're actually using at least 25% less water than we used to use on the same ground. Do you think that your newcomer status, the fact that you don't come from multiple generations of farmers, do you think that that has in some ways allowed you or helped you to be kind of more open to doing things in a different way? You know, that that is a great question because I've thought about that over the years. And I do believe that not being raised on a farm actually gave me a little different perspective. I think uh, maybe a little more open to change, to look for new innovative ideas and to put them into practical uh, use here on the farm. Does it ever cross your mind that maybe... Maybe farming on this scale just really doesn't make sense in California anymore with so many people who also need water and and will continue to compete with agriculture. Well, we know that there's continual battles between not only the people, but the environment. Uh, We support environmental water. Uh, We know that that is critical for California's well-being. Meaning that it's also important to have water flowing, to have marshlands, to sort of like there's wildlife. There's not just people and crops. There's also animals and fish and all that kind of stuff. Right. And, and farm, I think farmers understand that and, uh, and, and agree with that. We want to be treated fairly. We want to keep our land in production, you know, as the best we can. There are so many crops that can only be grown here that the rest of the country really relies on. And... If we end up having to take land out of production, it not only affects the farmers and the workers and the communities, but it affects the rest of the United States. Um, it's it's about uh, food security and having what we like to have on our on our table when we eat. That's Don Cameron, general manager and vice president of Terra Nova Ranch in California. In the West, it is hard to think about water as anything other than a precious commodity. Water rights are bought and sold like real estate in many Western states. Investment firms snap up huge tracts just for the water rights attached to the land. If heading off a potential catastrophe requires recalibrating our relationship with water, 
This whole commodity idea is maybe a good place to start. We could start to think of water as a common resource rather than mine and yours. Or we could go even further. The Blackfeet believe supernatural beings live in the water, that your life is easier if you have relationships with the supernatural realm. What can we learn from an indigenous perspective on water? I'm Julie Rose. This is Top of Mind. The Blackfeet believe there are three separate, like parallel worlds. There's the sky world and earth, and then there's the underwater world. This is Rosalind Lapierre. I'm a uh, Native American historian and also an environmental historian. Lapierre is a professor of history at the University of Illinois in Urbana-Champaign and an enrolled member of the Blackfeet tribe in Montana. I grew up primarily on the Blackfeet Reservation. It is the Great Plains. Um, So you have to think of a place that has rolling hills, very few trees, uh, you know, short grass prairies. So people almost always live near creeks or rivers. So I grew up at my, when I was at my grandparents' house, right next to this creek. And so throughout my life, my grandparents always talked about respecting uh, the underwater world, respecting the deities who lived in the underwater world, going to the river or the creek to pray. And they weren't necessarily praying to the water. They were actually praying to the entities, the different um, divine entities that lived in the water. So the creek or the, or the river or the lake would be like a sacred place. Absolutely. And, and always treated with respect. Um, and so, you know, when I was growing up, you know, we'd go down to the creek and we'd play. <laughs> um, we were always taught to treat um, that place um, as a place of respect because it was a place where the divine lived. So again, if you were a practitioner of Blackfeet religion, um, people often went down to a creek or a river at sunrise or sunset, um, and they would take that time, again, to pray, to communicate with the divine. And so this was part of my family's regular kind of religious life. One of the basic kind of beliefs of Blackfeet people is that humans can exist on their own without any kind of interaction or relationship with the supernatural realm. You don't have to ever practice religion if you don't want to. And by that, I mean, you don't ever have to interact with the supernatural realm. But the second part of the belief system is the Blackfeet believe that your life is easier if you have relationships with the supernatural realm. One of the ways that I describe it is to try to create allies, right? And so part of the Blackfeet belief system is the more allies that you have, the more friends that you have, the more kin that you have that are in these other supernatural realms, the better life you're going to live. So what would that lens... um... If, if the creek behind your house were to run dry or to flood, how might a, a Blackfeet person respond to that if they had worked on creating an ally in the water realm? So the Blackfeet also believe that much of the what we call the quote-unquote natural world is actually completely within the realm of the supernatural. So... When there is too much water and something is flooding, that is because that particular deity created that situation. Um, And so one of the reasons why Blackfeet create allyships with the supernatural realm is so that those kinds of things don't happen. So if you want to live a life where you always have access to water, you always have access to food to harvest, you always have access to animals to hunt, um, that's why you would have 
these relationships with the supernatural allies. Would water conservation fit into, or how might it fit into um, this relationship that you're describing? There wouldn't be such a thing as conservation. You wouldn't need to conserve something because it would already be being taken care of because you're treating that place with respect. So you wouldn't be uh, wasting or polluting the water anyway. You wouldn't no, have to, you'd already no. be using only what you needed in the way that you needed it. Right. And because you would always be treating that place with respect, whether it was a creek, whether it was a mountain, um, whether it was, again, kind of the sky realm, the idea of conservation would be just kind of out of context. Thanks to Rosalind Lapierre for sharing that perspective with us. She's a professor of history at the University of Illinois in Urbana-Champaign. And she wrote a book about the Blackfeet spiritual beliefs she learned from her grandparents. It's called Invisible Reality. Even adopting just a bit of that supernatural view could prompt some pretty big changes in our behaviors. I know it'd be a lot harder to take those long, long showers I enjoy so much if I were trying to maintain a respectful relationship with the water. But the thing is, most of us have some very compelling and not at all supernatural reasons to be careful with our water use right now. One might be money. More and more cities are adopting prices that go up as you use more water. The other, for those of us in areas of drought, is the very obvious fact that we're running out. We've seen the reservoirs at shockingly low levels in person and all over the news. Why isn't that enough to get us conserving like crazy? I think this is one of the broader misconceptions that people have, that just informing people and telling them that there's a drought, that's going to change their behavior. Most of the time, it's not. You can tell me that French fries are unhealthy. I'm still going to eat them because I like to. <laughs> so Colin Cool is a professor of political science and environmental studies at Northern Illinois University. And a few years ago, he worked on an experiment to try to figure out why it's so hard to get people to change their water habits. They partnered with a water district in a Southern California suburb and divided the customers into four groups and they got different combinations of information, motivation, behavioral skills, and then one group didn't get anything. They just got the normal communications from the water district. Information, motivation, and behavioral skills. This is the crux of the experiment. The theory is that in order to get people to change their behavior, they need all three. Knowing there's a problem isn't enough. They need to be motivated in some way. They need to have a reason to do it. And then they need to have a skill set or know what behaviors to change that actually are going to make a difference. And, and importantly, they need to believe that those behavior changes are actually going to make a difference. So here's how this looked on thousands of postcards they mailed to water users in California. Information in this case was how much of the, the water supply was available, like the reservoir, that it had gone below a certain point. And then... For our behavioral skills, we told them, you know, you could let your lawn go brown, put mulch around your plants, since about half of household water use is, is outdoors, only running full loads of laundry, trying to limit the amount that you're taking a shower. So we gave them kind of this list of, of tips. And then for motivation, which gets really tricky, we used what's called social norms. What are others in your community or in this meaningful group for you, what are they doing? So we told them three quarters of them are have found at least two ways to save water, which kind of this implication, like, you should be doing this too. Why would I care that my neighbors were doing a good job conserving water? Yeah, I mean, I, I think the simple answer is like, we went to high school, right? And we, of course, we're, we're going to be interested in our peer groups and what's what other whatever what others are doing. We're a lot more social than we might think, right? We're not always going to be making our decisions based on this cost-benefit calculation. A lot of times we're just kind of following the crowd. I feel like it also goes the other way too, though. Like I had a, um, th this last summer, it was really hot and dry in, in, in Utah where I live. And, you know, we were hearing messages about watering your lawn less and using less water. And so um, I, my lawn was like, 
quite a bit more brown than a lot of the other lawns on the street. And I was constantly feeling guilty about this and sort of like, oh, they're probably judging me. Right. It feels harder to establish a norm <laughs> of using less if it if it's going to reflect out publicly for the world to see. Nobody knows how much water, how, how long my showers are, but they can see that my lawn is dying, you know? Right. And the fact that you felt uncomfortable going against the norm kind of fits with with what we would expect. Um, and you're you're right that if there is if a norm doesn't exist, then it can be really hard to you know, get one to to develop because because rationally you're thinking this is the right thing to do. I'm helping. I know that there's that there's this problem. I'm probably even going to save some money on my water bill or whatever else. Um, but then in the back of your head, you want to follow the you want to you know you don't you don't want to do what's different. Is there any other motivation besides peer pressure that works well to motivate people? Yeah, I, I, well, yeah, this is a whole slew of whole disciplines worth of research, but uh, appeals to identity can be pretty effective, like a commonly held identity. One of my favorite examples of this is uh, in Texas, they had a really big problem with litter, especially on the roadside. So they they started this campaign called "Don't Mess with Don't Mess with Texas," which is an appeal to that strong, independent Texan identity. Right? And uh, so they put they they painted that on all these all these on all these trash cans, um, and it ended up having a, a fairly large effect on litter on on the roads. And so appealing to those, you know, whether that's the the city or the state or whatever it might be, or or other forms of identity, uh, can be can be pretty powerful. Uh, as well. Cool and his colleagues found people in the experiment who got postcards with all three components, the information, the motivating peer pressure, and the list of specific behaviors to adopt, reduced their water use the most. The largest water users in the study actually cut their use by 25%. Now, the bad news? After a few months, there's really no difference in water use between the, the people that got our postcards and those that that didn't. So I think, you know, bigger picture, the idea is, okay, how can we get people to uh, kind of take the decision out, whether that means we motivate them to buy a low-flow toilet or a low-flow showerhead, uh, stuff like that. So they're not having to continuously make these decisions to you know, conserve water or to be more pro-environmental. Yeah, and that also gets at this issue of um, how I need to feel like whatever effort I'm making, especially if it's painful or inconvenient, I, in order to keep doing it, I, I really need to feel like it matters. Right, and I think that's kind of the the fundamental puzzle with a lot of this is that it's easier or more convenient or more fun to, to not make the change. Um, and the changes that we do make benefit the group as a whole, but I don't personally reap the benefits. So... Why should I make all these changes when my neighbor is going to benefit even though they're watering their, their, their lawn every single day and it's all flowing down the street? You know, as political scientists, we would call this like a collective action problem where we all have individual incentives not to contribute to this, to this good. Uh, in this case, it would be water, access to water. Uh, but as a result, we all end up being worse off. So really what I'm interested in is what, what causes people or how we can we help people to make that decision that contributes to, to, the, to that good, that, that, that common good for everybody. And I think, you know, our kind of, again, a, a kind of a, maybe a misconception or, or something that we, when we think about, well, what do we, what do, we do to save the environment? Our, our go-to response is that we need to change our individual, our private behaviors. And in many ways, we're letting the politicians off the hook to make hard, hard changes that are going to have a more meaningful impact. So um, we, we call this this process individuation, where responsibility for dealing with environmental harms, whether that's climate change or water use, is put on the individual. And it's just lazy individuals that aren't changing their behavior when actually, right, this is a societal problem that we can be solving through the broader political system. Right, but that but it creates also this. Um, there's a, there's a high risk then that if the solution lies in the lapse of us as individual water users to use less, then it, it's very hard for me to trust that everybody else is going to do enough. It's easier to kind of throw up our hands. I feel like if we have made it an individual solution, 
Exactly. And I think the, and there's some kind of interesting work that suggests that when you do the individual level thing, like turning down your thermostat, uh, then you're less likely to do the the public thing. So you're less likely to sign the petition or something like that. So we kind of like, I've done enough already. I turned off the tap while I brushed my teeth. I don't need to donate to that environmental org or something like that. Um, so individual actions are limited. We need to be thinking bigger picture. So what would your advice be then, uh, Professor Cool, to to an individual who who has sort of felt like, well, my little water use is, you know, like this is a bigger problem than I can solve with my individual behavior, but it's still a problem I'm concerned about. How, how, what would you recommend I start thinking about um, and, and, and focusing my attention on? Yeah, I, I think the, the broader lesson is to think more politically, to be more of an advocate uh, for those bigger changes. And so, you know, keep doing the small things that conserve water and reduces your direct impact, but don't let that be at the expense of, of thinking about broader societal changes. Colin Cool is a professor of political science and environmental studies at Northern Illinois University. So driving home from work recently, I noticed one of my neighbors has a new front lawn. But get this, it's artificial turf. It's really convincing, though. It looks great. I had heard this was becoming a thing in drought areas like ours, but I hadn't actually seen somebody go for it like that. I, on the other hand, think I'm leaning in a different direction to try and avoid the embarrassment of having the ugliest lawn on the street next summer. I'm going to try ripping out most of the grass, wish me well, and putting in a bunch of native plants that don't need that much water. Now, the trick, of course, is going to be making it look like I did it on purpose, that it's not just some wild patch of weeds. I tell you, the pressure to conform to community norms is real. Now, taking shorter showers? That's going to take some real willpower. But I guess being aware is the first step, yeah? I would love to hear what this episode brought to mind for you. Connect with us on social media. We are at Top of Mind Pod, and I am at Julie Rose Radio. Top of Mind is a BYU Radio podcast. Today's episode was produced by Elizabeth Miller, Cole Cummings, and Vanessa Goodman, with help from me and James Hoops. Our sound designers are Trent Reimschussel, Christian Mockatel, and Mitchell Towsley. We'd love to get your help spreading the word about Top of Mind. And an easy way to do that is to leave a review or give us a rating on the podcast app where you are listening right now. Thanks. I'm Julie Rose. We'll talk soon.